Hi there, my lovelies. Thank you for joining me in this small but perfectly formed parish at the bottom of our garden, the Holy Shed. And I hope that you are well wherever you are, whatever it is that you're up to here in the UK. Uh, I hope that you're enjoying some of the sunshine or managing to keep out of it, depending on your particular preference. Now, as some of you know, this week we celebrated our anniversary, me and this uh, girl who I met when I was, I don't know, I think I must have been 18, maybe just 17, but 18 probably, and she was a couple of years older. Florence and the Machine have a song about her, you know. Well, seems like that to me anyway. It's called Oh Patricia, and it says this, Oh Patricia, you've always been my North Star. I have to tell you something. I'm still afraid of the dark. You take my hand in your hand and flowers grow. Do you understand? With every seed you sow, you make this cold world beautiful. It's a great song, guys. You know, take a listen uh, if you like Florence and the Machine, that is. And those lines, so, so true for me. Um, Yeah, she's always been. She still is my North Star. And when we are in dark places and I am somewhat afraid... It's, yeah, having her with me and her hand in mind that makes all the difference. So, happy anniversary, sweetheart. But, of course, I'm not here to tell you about us. Well, I will tell you a bit about us in a moment. But, first of all, I would like to tell you a story about someone called Laura. Laura was 17, maybe 18, when she became pregnant. I don't know how old her boyfriend was. Similar age, I imagine. Uh, just kids. The young man quickly disappeared from the scene and uh, I know nothing of him at all. But I do know about the wretched, mortifying shame Laura experienced back at a time which was considerably less blasé about such things. When Laura gave birth to a daughter, her mother visited her in the hospital with a message from Laura's dad to the effect that she was welcome to return home, but her baby wasn't. Get rid of the baby or don't come home, he said. Well, without a second thought, the young woman uh, asked her mum to pack her a case and have it ready when she left hospital. She had absolutely no intention of giving up her little daughter. Oh my goodness. I mean, I wish I'd met Laura. What a young woman. However, I was blessed to conduct her funeral which I arranged with said daughter Um, and uh, the one that she decided would be part of her life forever, whatever the cost. When I heard Laura's story, frankly, it broke my heart, but filled me with enormous admiration for her determination and courage. And I was knocked out to hear that mother and daughter turned out to be very, very proud of each other, of who they became, and that Laura did eventually find love and lived uh, a happy life with her bloke for 40 years. What a lucky man he was. And what a wretched existence her parents must have had. Our situation, which I've mentioned before in the Holy Shed, was a little bit more straightforward, But it was a big deal, you know, in our conservative church community in the 1960s that we were seven months pregnant on our wedding day. Back then, aged 19, 
I was required to stand in front of the church, 150 people or so, and make a public confession. Pretty damn difficult thing to do, I can tell you. But hey, it was character building, as they say, and we got a Jenny in our life. And that's not something that we would now change for anything. But there was shame. Oh yeah, there was shame, especially for Pat, because that's how it's often been for women, since the mythical Garden of Eden, actually. It's the women that tend to carry the shame. Even though we moved on and I became an itinerant preacher and church leader, and even though we never really considered what we had done as sin, just just a bit of youthful and naive over-enthusiasm, we might say, nevertheless, Pat still secretly carried shame with her. Until, years later, at a wedding anniversary party, our daughter Jenny, the very same, gave a speech and she, she outed us. She just put it right out there. In my experience, there is considerable, uh, considerable problem of shame among many Christians, not least because even in churches that claim to be under grace and not under law, there is an underlying culture of rules and rule keeping. Call it righteousness or following God's will or whatever. Um, there are many spoken and unspoken rules about how good Christian folk are supposed to behave and what they should believe. As someone wrote to me, uh, if it's, it, she said, it's as if I'm in a kindergarten, not a grown-up community. If I want to fit in, if I want to feel accepted, I'll need to keep inside the lines, be a virtual carbon copy of everyone else. Well, I can't do that, she said. So you end up with, I think, an underlying culture of fear. Not just fear that you might put a foot wrong, but fear that it may be found out that you already, maybe habitually, put a foot or two wrong. I mean, nursery schools need rules for everybody's safety. But there comes a point when people must give that up. They must emerge. They must behave like grown-ups, you know, make their own decisions and choices, which may differ from other people's in the group, and which sometimes, you know, may even be wrong. But hey, that's life. Making mistakes is part of life. Being grown-up means you take responsibility for your choices. You may be, admit, to getting it wrong sometimes. Find your reverse gear. I've, I've had a pretty active reverse gear throughout my life. But I tell you what, conformity is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You'll be relieved to know. And therein lies the issue, I think. Churches tend to be quite conformist social environments where we either unconsciously, mindlessly conform or pretend to conform and feel afraid of being caught out. I don't know if you're aware of something called transactional analysis. It was popularised uh, quite a long time now in a very, very popular book called I'm OK, You're OK. Basically, it says that um, there are three ego states, and there, there's two lines of them here, uh, each of which we may adopt at different times and in different situations parent, adult, child. And of course, other people are adopting them too. And this is why it's called transactional analysis, because we interact with other people 
and as we do that, we may find ourselves shifting from one ego state to another, and that may partly depend on which state they're in. Okay, so the parental state here is not talking about you know good parenting. This is the parental state is when we you know get earnest when we lay down the law, try to dictate how the other person should behave based on certain inter internalized rules of behavior that we hold. It's a state of literal or metaphorical finger pointing. And I guess we all do that at some point or other in our lives with some people and not with others. The child state is when we respond to that kind of parentalism by either conforming or sometimes rebelling in a childish manner. Often actual parent-child relationships continue a bit like this indefinitely which can create all kinds of problems so transactional tra transactional analysis ta is about how we take up these different ego states in different situations uh, you know an otherwise fully adult person for example may find themselves responding like a child when they return home to an overbearing parent or when confronted by an authority figure. So just looking back at the diagram again, you can see that there's all these lines there which say there's, there's so many different variations of how we may line up, you know. So, you know, when, when someone gets all parental with us, whether it's our literal parent or somebody else, then you have a decision. Uh, it's not one that you consciously make, but it's something that goes on inside. Uh, how you are going to react and, and very often the reaction is to respond as I say as a child. So um, here's the thing though this kind of interaction doesn't simply operate at the level of person-to-person -person interactions it can also operate uh, from what I can observe in organizations too uh, all kinds but today specifically in churches i think there's a lot of that transactional analysis going on uh, in the way that churches operate the whole nature of especially conservative styled religion is parental you know church leadership is parental the bible is taught in a parental fashion it's a parental book the whole church environment is parental it's a place of conforming and god too is represented in a parental way and that's why many of us many of us um, have gone much of our lives living with this parental God um, and I'm not talking here just like you know our father but I mean this parentalism this overbearing finger-pointing judgmental God Christian spirituality or, or discipleship as it's sometimes called nowadays or holiness these things are often based on a compliant child model, exemplified in phrases like only believe, you know, trust and obey, submit to God's will. And these kind of uh, watchwords, if you like, that get built into the kind of uh, the whole sociology of, of the culture of some churches um, produce in us a psychology of compliance and leave people feeling internally shamed if they fail to conform. 
In terms of transactional analysis, the desirable mode of interaction, if I just go back to it again, is the adult-to-adult one. That's what we are trying to achieve. That's where, to use the book's title, in effect, we're saying to each other, I'm okay, you're okay. There's no parenting going on. There's no childish conformity or rebellion going on. Um, It's a place where we can have grown-up conversations and grown-up disagreements without trying to coerce each other or blackmail emotionally or pressure each other into conformity. And this, to me, you know, is how a mature church should be able to exist, to to provide a space where differences uh, can coexist in an atmosphere of adult-to-adult relationships and interactions, you know, mutual respect and care, where individuals can make their own choices that that may differ from the accepted norm within that community, where they can choose to believe things that are, you know, out of kilter with what everybody else believes. That would be, in these terms, an adult-to-adult style community. And that, to me, is, is a healthy community, um, a mature community. Of course, it requires courage to take a different view in a situation like this, you know, to follow a different path, to make our own choice. And often it provokes fear, you know, especially when concerned people tell us that we're off key or following our own ways or backsliding or even being rebellious to God's will. And these things go on in churches. I know they do. But God never motivates us with fear. The parental mode is not the divine mode. Religion sometimes does, but God never motivates with fear. God never threatens, if you do that, then this, this, this. But God uh, holds and supports us, even when we get it wrong. Um, You know, it's not the accusing finger that is pointed toward us. It's the hands and arms of love that come to bear us up, to hold us, to uh, guide us into better ways. I think what, you know, sets people's alarm bells going with someone like me is when they assume that what I'm advocating is something that they often call complete relativism, you know, where nothing matters anymore, um, where there are no rules, you know, where, as they like to say, anything goes. And um, this actually cropped up recently after I gave my uh, talk a week or two ago on unnatural passions in the shed, in which I argued, if you were there, you'll remember, that none of the commonly quoted passages in the Bible about same-sex relations actually speak to the kind of love-based, co-equal, LGBT plus relationships that many of us recognise and experience uh, and support in today's world. Uh, Russell, I use his name because it's in the public domain on Facebook, Russell said he profoundly disagreed with me, saying that there could be no validation of a lifestyle that is, I quote, clearly not what God desires. Clearly not what God desires. Well, Russell, first, I don't see same-sex relationships as a lifestyle choice, as you've put it. Um, It's about, you know, who people are within themselves Uh, it's not just you know i think i'll choose to be gay Um, 
that's just really silly. That's not how it is for people. And secondly, I'd like, you know, you say that it's clearly not what God desires. Um, but you see, that isn't clear at all to me. Um, it's clear to me that LGBT plus people, the ones I know, who love partners uh, with exactly the same kindness, care, respect and faithfulness that I aspire to in my marriage, I think those people reflect the image of God wonderfully. And I think that's exactly uh, what God desires, if you want to put it in those terms. But then Russell goes on to say, Indeed, I'm left asking, is there anything in our culture or lifestyle choices that you think God may disagree with? Anything we do uh, with which God would disagree or take issue? Anything worthy of repentance? Or, he says, are all our choices acceptable and to be celebrated? Well, you know, I'm afraid I have no idea how Russell arrives at such questions from what I said in the shed that evening. But if you want me to answer it, yes, of course, I think there are things in our world uh, which, to use my language, grieve the heart of God. But I don't believe that two people of whatever binary or non-binary genders loving each other is one of those things that God disagrees with. I'm confident that God is grieved by abuse, by bullying and coercion in relationships, whether they're straight, gay, whatever, you know. I think that God's heart is grieved by the exploitation of the poor and marginalised in our society and in our world at large. I think God's heart is grieved by people fleeing violence and war and hardship only to be turned away when they arrive at where they hope they would find refuge in a better life. I think God's heart is grieved by the destruction of the planet through species depletion, through pollution of oceans and climate change and all that kind of stuff. I believe God grieves that wicked or mentally unbalanced people can so easily acquire guns and arms in the United States and elsewhere. You know, I do believe in the power and importance of repentance. That is part of my faith. Uh, but I, I, I struggle often with the way in which the word repentance is used. I'm not going to go into that now. Uh, I'll get onto it on another occasion. But in terms of things like interpersonal behaviour, uh, I believe we need to be grown up and allow people to make choices, provided, of course, that those choices do not lead to someone else's harm or abuse or explo exploitation. And I think this is fundamentally what Dietrich Bonhoeffer meant when he spoke back in the 1940s of what he called a world come of age. He said the world has come of age. Now, he didn't mean by that that people will now necessarily make good decisions. Heck no. <laughs> I mean, he was writing that from a Nazi prison uh, where, he, where he was going to die. Um, he meant that we no longer live, and he was saying this in the 40s, but so much more true now. He said we live no longer in an age where religious parentalism is a viable thing. You know, it did work at one time. Societies were governed and ruled by, you know, ecclesiastical authorities, by vicars and popes and Lord knows what. Uh, and they dictated, 
you know how people should behave and what they should believe and all the rest of it um however perfectly or imperfectly it was carried out society was on the face of it governed by that kind of religious parentalism Bonhoeffer was saying that has gone it's no longer viable only those people who buy into that particular kind of church club will submit to religious conformism the world has moved on and if it had moved on in 1944 when he wrote the, that, those things how much more has it moved on now and I believe this is, you know, a big part of why so many people have left the church or will never likely enter it at all, because they will no longer be told by church functionaries or dogmatic Bible-punching preachers what to believe or how to behave. They have their own, I would say, God-given powers to make judgments, to make doctrinal and ethical judgments and all kinds of others too. Um, we now need grown-up church communities where we can discuss, argue and respectfully disagree and then make our own choices. Going back to where we began with the story I told at the beginning, I've counselled people whose God is not dissimilar to Laura's dad, you know, who lays down the law, who says, these are my terms, obey or be gone. And I've heard that kind of portrayal of God over and over and over again in church circles over the years. I've spent more hours than I could possibly shake a stick at trying to shift good folk beyond the nagging inner voice of religious shame, trying to get people to trust their own deeper instincts and choices, uh, a God who's saying, you're okay, you know, trying um, most of all to help people find that completely different inner picture of God as one who holds and supports us even when we get it wrong and never ever writes us off. So, um, you know, I'm kind of tempted to go on, uh, you know, now that I'm on a roll, I'm tempted to go on and talk about the issue of pro-choice uh, and pro-control of women as it is featuring in the United States right now. Uh, and uh, which is actually what got me thinking about all of this in the first place. But we've run out of time, really. Uh, so maybe on another occasion, uh, we'll get round to doing that. So let's just pause for a moment for a prayer. And it's a prayer of thankfulness for the amazing capacity we have to make choices. Choices. I love choices. I hate it when I'm told that I have no choice, that this is the only way, the only decision, like it or not. Surely the world can't be reduced to a single option, one possibility, one right path, one true faith, believe or be damned. No, that can't be right. I think I am pro-choice. I can't imagine a rule book that covers every eventuality, which at the turn of a page, tells me emphatically, this is right, this is wrong. Who would want that? Some things are easy. You know, don't make it all about you. Don't treat people like things. Don't destroy or abuse or behave as if little ones have no worth. Other things make my head spin. 
the effect my innocent proclivities have on folk far, far away. Who made my best shirt? What is their life like? Who grew my coffee beans? Do other creatures make choices like mine? I can't tell. But I relish that I am entrusted with this joyful, onerous responsibility to live each day wondering and deciding. Yeah, amen to that. So, hey, it's time for a drink. I think to make a toast to these things that we're thinking about here in the shed today. So if you've got a glass of something, uh, get it to hand now. And join me in a toast. Here's a toast to being grown up, but still in touch with our playful inner child. Here's a toast to the glorious complexity of life, which offers so many different roads to travel. Not one single road appointed by God and it's hard luck if you miss it, but many roads, each with its own mysteries to be explored. It's a toast to making mistakes and being able to admit it without fear of heaven falling on our head. To choices, dear friends, to life, Lachaim. There you go. Thanks for joining me for another shed here today. And if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, you can do it through buying us a coffee. You just have to follow the link that's on your screen now. It's also always at the top of the Facebook posts um, on the Holy Shed Facebook page. Thank you very much, dear friends, for all the ways in which you encourage us and bear us up. And um, it means a great deal to us. So... A blessing and then I'll tell you something else. The blessing of God, the eternal goodwill of God, the shalom and salam of God, the wildness and warmth of God be among us and between us now and always. Amen. So yeah that is just about it but I'm going to finish with a video in a moment and you know what I mostly say at this point is uh, dear friends have a great week. Be kind to people. Be kind to Mother Earth. Be kind to yourself. Stay human. And uh, being kind to yourself, you know, I've had I've had some people say, you know, that that's been quite a challenge to them. Um, they understand about being kind to other people, but being kind to ourselves is is rather a more challenging thing and more challenging for some than others. So we're going to finish with a little video from the lovely people at the School of Life. And it's a video all about how to be kinder to ourselves. So I hope you enjoy this and feel stirred up by it to maybe look in the mirror once or twice and say, Dave, you're okay, mate. I like you. So there it is. Stay human. I'll see you soon. If there is one generalisation we can hazard of those who end up mentally unwell, we could say that they are masters at being very nasty to themselves, without noticing they are even being so. 
Release from the grip of self-loathing therefore has to start with a growing awareness of what we are doing to ourselves and what the alternatives might be. For example, we might start to notice that no sooner has something nice happened to us that we set about wondering when something awful will strike in revenge, that every success has to be ruined by a feeling of foreboding and guilt, that every potentially pleasant day ends up marred by panic or a sense of loss, and that we spontaneously imagine that everyone must hate us, and that the worst things are being said about us the moment we leave any room. None of this looks on the surface like self-hatred. We could just say that we have a worried mind or a regretful temperament. But it is useful to group these ideas under a singular title in order to fully identify the direction in which they point, towards the systematic destruction of any pleasure in being ourselves, which is, when we think about it, a very nasty thing indeed to do to someone. Without realising it, we are committed to throttling all of our chances at contentment at the earliest possible opportunity. We might imagine, as an experiment, trying to be as kind as possible towards our own minds. Rather than dragging in every last deformed and mean idea into the theatre of consciousness, we could dare to be vigilant about only presenting our minds with the very kindest and most reassuring ideas. The moment we left a room, we might be ruthless in preventing thoughts about our unacceptability from manifesting themselves in the usual way. They might be begging to be let in, and claiming all sorts of reasons why they should be so. But for once, we could give them a firm no. If they kept trying to make their way into our minds, we might put on a piece of music or do some gardening, anything other than allow destructive concepts to have their normal rule over us. Where does this unconscious impulse to be unkind to ourselves come from? How is the choice to torture ourselves made? We can hazard another generalisation. The way we treat ourselves is an internalisation of the way others once treated us, either directly in the sense of how they spoke to us, or indirectly in the sense of how they behaved around us, which could have included ignoring us, or openly displaying a preference for someone else. To get a measure of where we stand on the spectrum of self-love, we need only ask ourselves a very simple question that we have nevertheless ignored for far too long. How much do I like myself? If the answer immediately and intuitively comes back that we feel loathsome, there is a history that we urgently need to consider and are, conveniently for our self-torturing minds, choosing to ignore. The contempt we habitually show ourselves is in neither way fair nor right. We should spot the oddity and partiality of treating ourselves with a viciousness we wouldn't accord to our worst enemies. People who commit suicide aren't those for whom a few things have gone very wrong. They are people who have encountered some otherwise survivable reversals against a background of fierce self-hatred. It is the self-hatred that will end up killing them, not the apparent subjects of their panic and sorrow. As ever, salvation comes through self-awareness. There is nothing inevitable about self-hatred. We are treating ourselves unkindly because people were in the past not especially kind to us, and we are being touchingly yet dangerously loyal to their philosophies of derision. But if we are to stay alive, we need radically to redraw our moral code and return to kindness the prestige that it should always have had. We have learnt far too much about a lack of mercy, about panic, about self-suspicion and finding oneself pitiful. Now we need to rediscover the virtues of forgiveness, 
mercy, calm and gentleness. And when we panic and feel intensely anxious about the future, we need to remember that we are in essence worrying about our fundamental legitimacy and lovability. Our survival depends on a swift mastery of the art of self-compassion. Our online shop has a range of books and gifts that address the most important and often neglected areas of life. Click now to learn more.